Hey, Money on the Left and Superstructure listeners, this is Will. I'm really excited to introduce this lecture from Scott Ferguson's Blockbuster course, where he talks about some of the central arguments of his book, Declarations of Dependence, Money, Aesthetics, and the Politics of Care. I can't emphasize enough how important Declarations of Dependence has been for my own thinking, and I'm really excited to introduce this lecture for you. What you're about to hear is a preview, but you can access the whole lecture by becoming a member of our Patreon. Doing so will allow us to better compensate all of our behind-the-scenes contributors and continue to grow and expand the work that we do. I should mention as well that this isn't a hard paywall. If you're experiencing financial hardships and are unable to donate to our project, you can reach out to any of us for a free membership. And regardless, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this preview. I'll see you online. Then, as the story goes, and as most aesthetic theorists and those who are kind of plugged into the plugged into the the history of uh, Western art will tell you, what's thought to happen in the, in this dialectic of of aesthetics next is you get the onslaught of what's called postmodernity. Some people say postmodernity starts in the '50s. Some people say it's the '60s. Some people say it's the '70s and '80s. But basically, what happens is that. Any sense that there's some kind of antagonism or resistance to the market, to money, to its alienations, to its dominations, starts to go away. One of the quintessential examples of this for certain critical postmodern theorists uh, is Andy Warhol. This is an Andy Warhol painting. It is an abstract painting of dollar signs that are repeated in an abstract, uniform way, but with, you know, these, you know, it's, it's a screen print and it, it's, you know, with a variety of sensationalized colors. And it is not shying away from money. It is not shying away from commerce. Warhol himself was a commercial artist. You know, he helped with like, you know, selling stuff with like ad agencies, right? And then he became an artist and that became part of his sensibility, part of his kind of blasé, um, um, you know, approach to what, what became called pop art, right? Um, and this, you know, was at once, this kind of tendency was at once sort of embraced, but also was very, very um, anxiety provoking and really for 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 critics and social movements, etc., who were worried about the loss of some kind of more autonomous sphere or a sphere of resistance that would be against money, against the market, against alienation. This just seemed like, oh, wow, you know, the dialectic of the aesthetic has been lost. <laughs> you know, we lost. <laughs> this, you know... Um, the, the, the utopian socialist and communist and, and, and radically democratic impulse of modernity was to basically have, have the aesthetic overwhelm the money sphere, get rid of the money sphere, and just be the aesthetic. But here, what you have is the money sphere co-opting the aesthetic sphere and just kind of making, making aesthetics making art, art production serve itself, serve commerce, serve, serve private power, serve domination, serve exploitation. And then when you start seeing critics and historians start um, 
start moving away from the word postmodernity and postmodernism to the neoliberal era or what we're calling neoliberal network society, it's just even worse, right? It gets even worse. And then part of the story too is that what this means is our lives are, are succumbing more and more to abstraction, to monetary abstraction and its alienation, but to technological abstraction, we're losing control and it's all just serving the big bad beast of a machine that is global capitalism. This is the just so story. This is the story that all my colleagues and everyone I read will tell you over and over and over again in their own ways, with their own contingencies, with their own heroes and villains, but it's always some version of this. Now, there are certain people, like contemporary people in the art world and, and, and critics and scholars, who, you know, will say, well, it's not that bad. And actually, there's really good things going on. But I don't think anyone would suggest, in reflecting upon this longer history, that it's good for aesthetics. Okay, so just one example. This is something that Mark actually wrote about uh, for another class. Um, um, that I was pleasantly surprised to, to discover him writing about. One, one example is the way that the fine art market today um, has just exploded into this crazy speculative sphere where it's basically all just about flipping. It's not about art anymore. It's not about appreciating an artist. It's about buying low and selling high and buying on a, on a primary market in order to flip it onto a secondary market. And what's awful about that is not only is it alienating to the artist, who usually isn't seeing much money from the process, um, uh, it's alienating to art as an institution, and it makes the value of art really just be about um, about leveraging and leveraging between rich people. And in fact, it's a symptom of the fact that we have a, a gigantic wealth disparity, that we have all these people with all of this excess cash that they can invest in uh, this, this hyper-inflated uh, art. And, um, you know, kind of, kind of scandalous criticisms come out every once in a while about this. And this, uh, this particular example is that there was a trend um, like, I don't know, six, seven years ago, there was a trend where all of these MFA students coming out of art schools were, um, were making these kind of like reboots of abstract expressionism. Um, they were very oriented toward like process and like creating these abstract patterns. And the, the kind of critical, and they were, they were flipped and speculated upon and leveraged and blah, 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 blah. And, and there were a lot of criticisms about them. But, you know, ultimately they were sort of implicitly and explicitly showing the resonances between these abstract paintings and the abstraction of money in the market. And they're both kind of uh, um, terrible and alienating. And so th this, this movement, if you want to call it that, or market trend was called various things. It was called zombie formalism, like a living dead formalism. Uh, sometimes, my favorite one, it was, it was called crapstraction. Uh, so these are, you know, these aren't just like um, uh, esoteric terms and ideas. Like this is actually informing contemporary art movements and art debates and, and problems and antagonisms and conflicts and um, a sense of injustice and whatnot. So 
the way the way that this story gets told is that in the neoliberal era we find that the aesthetic basically is over or if it's not over because people keep getting mfas and they keep making art and and people make movies and do all kinds of things the aesthetic project as a critical project that is somehow somehow in opposition to money or in opposition uh, to the system as a whole is just dying a slow and unending death. And there's really not, not much of an alternative. Now, you will have sophisticated types who will tell you, yeah, this whole thing was nonsense from the beginning. Like, money was always involved in aesthetics and art, so that's silly. But even they don't really have an alternative way of framing it because they start from an assumption that money is alienating, monetary abstraction is alienating, and so that's got to be the big problem. So what, what does the aesthetic or what, do, what does aesthetic practice do in a way that, that is critical in relationship to that sphere when it is constantly uh, having to participate in that sphere? In my book, I uh, not only try to rethink critical theory and cultural and aesthetic analysis, from the point of view of the riddle of care as a problem of abstraction. Hopefully all that means something to you, if only abstractly at this point. But from that position, from those premises, I am also trying to put forth an argument that totally reinterprets what this entire money aesthetics dialectic is supposedly about and my claim is that the entire thing was predicated on false premises now that doesn't mean this is simply an intellectual argument this is an argument about history about institutions about how people and movements and infrastructures all kind of understood themselves built themselves up operated themselves hopes and dreams and fantasies and, you know, you name it, right? So it's, it's all very real, right? Um, and what I'm suggesting is that the way that this dialectic construed money or construed the marketplace with all of its alienating abstractions and the way that it, it construed the aesthetic as being opposed to it was basically doomed from the start and, and based on really highly problematic understandings of what the domain of money is and what aesthetic production is and can do, essentially. And these kinds of contradictions didn't actually have to structure this history in, in the way that it has. I'm not saying then, well, if everybody had just listened to me 250 years ago, we'd be living in a utopia. No, what I'm doing is I'm diagnosing the way that this history has unfolded and the categories that we have used to understand that history in order to um, defamiliarize and reframe it so we can learn from uh, its limitations and its problems moving forward. Now... This whole history, what it, what it is based on is a view 
of monetary abstraction, of money as an abstract medium, that, that imagines it as something like a, a finite, private, zero-sum physics. And my claim is that money is nothing like a finite, private, zero-sum physics. I'm also claiming that not only is money not that, but social reality isn't that either. Now, I, that doesn't mean I'm saying that we're all just moon, moon people who don't have any relationship to you know, materials or forces or gravity or anything like that. No, what I'm saying is that the way that we imagine immediate physical causes and effects and movements and forces does not actually describe the way that social reality uh, works as a whole. What we call physics can be part of that social reality, but if you imagine that physics is sort of like the end-all be-all of social reality, or, or as a Marxist would put it, the base of social reality, you're going to misunderstand, I would argue, the way that money, monetary abstraction, and reality is actually, social reality is actually organized. And it's what a phrase borrowing from Kant, uh, I would use what its conditions of possibility are conditions of possibility. But for this, we have to repose the question, what is money?